This is Sophie Wilson. You are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Hello, this is Linus Wilson. On this episode of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast, I'm going to read the second half of my book, COVID Road Trip. So in the 2020, basically all the international borders were closed and there was no way for me to get back to my boat in New Caledonia. And so my family bought an RV and I went on a tour of the Southwest United States. So I have good news to report for the 2022 season. So I've been uh, following the news in Australia very closely and Australia opened up its borders for its citizens back in November 2021 and in December 2021 New Caledonia opened up the borders that allowed me to visit the slow boat. Unfortunately I was not able to move the slow boat to Australia because I couldn't get a visa to go there because they hadn't opened the border to tourists by that point but uh, they're going to open the border uh, starting on February 21st, 2022, so that we'll be able to sail to Australia next season. Now, while there hasn't been like special word on how they're going to treat sailboats, I think the situation has changed markedly in just the last few months. Number one, there was like no tourist visas for people outside of like Singapore, Japan, and South Korea. So basically none of the English-speaking world was allowed to travel to Australia unless you had an Australian passport or permanent residency or some sort of work permit there. Uh, But tourism was just totally prohibited for the last two years and thankfully that's coming to an end and that really is going to make a difference. You know, I did a lot of research about, you know, where we could do the -the round-the-world trip and the research I did, the alternatives were not great. Uh, that the best alternative was to sail to Indonesia. I did find a boatyard that has dry storage in Indonesia. I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but they did confirm that they do do dry storage still. And I think they're on the island of Timor. Uh, so that's an alternative. My preference would obviously to be go to Australia. I'd like to be. Uh, in an English-speaking country uh, for (laughs) this season, if I could, uh, after being uh, in French-speaking countries for so long, although Tonga was mostly English-speaking, so that was quite nice. Uh, But Tonga had its own issues. I I don't think Tonga's going to open anytime soon, and of course they had the problem with the volcano, which we sailed right by, and uh, I'm told from our, our guest... Don McIntyre, the the founder of the modern GGR, and he's also running a lot of other boat races that are really interesting, that Nomuka Iki, the Tongan island where he set up the Royal Nomuka Yacht Club, that was totally destroyed. Uh, I don't think there was anybody on the island when the tsunami hit after the the uh, Tongan volcano went off, but I visited that place back in 2019, took a lot of videos. I'll have to put together those uh, videos to show you uh, it, but it's a real tragedy. So Tonga's got its own problems right now, but it looks good for the Australian cruising season. And while we did have an announcement from the New Zealand Prime Minister that 
they're thinking of opening up to tourism by October. We've got a date certain uh, February 25th for or February 21st, 2022, uh, for international tourists to come in to Australia. And they, Australians have been engaging in international tourism for the last several months uh, because not because other people were keeping them out, but because their own government was keeping them out. And then the other thing is that the travel is quarantine free now. So uh, you're not going to have to do the 14-day hotel quarantine that some sailors did when they uh, visited Australia under the safe haven exemption. So you don't need the safe haven exemption anymore, I would believe. Uh, you know, it's possible they make some sort of carve out that makes it hard to sail there, but I don't see that happening. The key thing, though, is you have to be fully vaccinated, right? So, and they define that as two shots of the mRNA vaccines. So, which is basically like most other places in the world uh, that if you want to do international travel now, you need to be fully vaccinated. Of course, before you travel there, make sure you check their travel regulations. And I do think it's it's a much broader list than I mentioned of the, the eligible COVID vaccines, but you check those things before you sail or, or fly there. All right, I'm gonna give you the second half uh, chapters 10 and onward of COVID Road Trip, which is available uh, as an ebook that is to read for Kindle or another e-reader uh, on Amazon exclusively. Also, uh, you know, we've got some other audiobooks that are on Amazon. I do plan to bring you Slow Boat to Cuba, what I've not read already on this podcast, for free, uh, but thanks to the patrons of this podcast that, you know, support the podcast. They're bringing it to you for free. That's at patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. But I plan to uh, keep those audiobooks that are on Audible, Amazon's audiobook platform, there on Audible. That includes the wonderfully acted, voice acted by Brian Hendiggis, uh, slow Boat to the Bahamas, and also The Cruise of the Ogre, uh, which I narrated, and also Sailing to Treasure Island by J.C. Voss, which I also narrated. All right, enjoy. This is the second half of COVID Road Trip by Linus Wilson. Chapter 10, Climbing El Capitan Without Rope. My next big goal was to climb El Capitan via the Upper Falls route, not along its sheer face. El Capitan is the gold standard of rock climbing. Its sheer vertical face is the challenge that many rock climbers dream of and few can actually climb. I'm not a rock climber. I just put one foot in front of the other. The Upper Falls route ignores the granite face and climbs the mountain the back way. One of my sailboat crew members who sailed from Ecuador to Hiva Oamar cases with me had done that. The passage was over 3,000 nautical miles, and we got hit by a whale in the middle of it. That story is told uh, 
in a video on my YouTube channel, Slow Boat Sailing. When interviewing for the crew position, he said he started late in the day and they were stumbling around in the dark on the way back. Unfortunately, my legs were too sore to contemplate that long hike up El Capitan. For the next couple days, Avery and I visited Yosemite. We attempted to hike the Bridal Veil Falls, but that path was closed. We visited Mirror Lake, which had very little water. Mirror Lake is a creek and it only reflects the peaks for a limited number of days per year. I took off my shoes and carried Avery to cross its 15-foot wide, quote, lake. While exploring near the village with Avery, I learned one key piece of information. The Upper Yosemite Falls and the Lower Yosemite Falls had different trailheads. That would be awful if you started hiking the Lower Yosemite Falls to find they did not lead to the Upper Falls or El Capitan. The next day on June 20th, 20. 20, I was still too sore for the El Capitan hike. Instead, I did the smaller hikes of Taft Point, Sentinel Dome, and Glacier Point. They were accessed via a steep road with parking near the, all the hikes. Sentinel Dome was my favorite at 2.2 miles round trip. It was an easier and shorter subdome hike. It I saw bears on my way to Taft Point. I had tried to acquire bear spray in Levining, California, but the outfitters were out of the spray that stuns bears from up to 30 feet. Luckily, there these bears were not interested in me, and I hiked without incident. I drove to Mariposa Grove since the Glacier Point Road was near that side of the vast Yellowstone National Park. Once again, the bus connections to Mariposa Grove were shut down. Thus, the non from the non-handicapped parking lot, it was a three-mile hike each way to the grizzly giant tree, which impressed Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir when they visited the grove. On June 20th, I hiked 12 miles and drove almost five hours on very dangerous mountain roads. Personally, I would skip the Mariposa Grove and stay for an extra night near the Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park, which has bigger sequoia trees than Mariposa Grove in Yellowstone. I got one more true rest day before El Capitan on June 21st. Avery and I drove around Yosemite Valley but did no substantial hikes. On June 22nd, 2020, I attempted my ascent of El Capitan solo without ropes. I got up early and started hiking before 6 a.m. Unfortunately, I remembered that I forgot my trekking pole in the Jeep point at 0.2 miles. That pushed my hike to a start time of 6.10 a.m. from the parking lot. I departed the RVA park at 4.30 a.m. The Upper Falls stairs were the first part of the El Capitan hike. I cannot emphasize how tough those stairs are. I was hounded by mosquitoes buzzing my face, but mostly not biting for 12 of the 13 hours of the round trip hike. The mosquitoes rarely bit and focus on my eyes. My mosquito repellent seemed to have little effect. I was duped by the 0.2 mile scenic detour that took me a mile round trip after reaching the top of the falls. The Upper Yosemite Falls is the highest waterfall in North America. After the Upper Falls stairs, the trail was mostly wooded, but the trail was easier to lose than other trails in Yosemite because uncut trees interrupted the trail or the trail crossed through unworn granite. It was up and up and down trail, but the ups and downs were not as bad as the upper falls. In the wooded portion, I saw some deer and bear scat. I, as I did during the half dome climb, I accidentally left my trekking pole on a log and had to backtrack adding 0.5 miles to the hike. I treated some water from the closest stream to El Capitan, but in the end, I never drank the iodine-treated stream water. I carried four liters of water, as with half the half dome climb. This 
day was hotter than the Half Dome hike five days earlier by about 15 degrees. No one showed up at the summit of El Capitan when I visited. Moreover, the view atop El Capitan was much better than advertised. The peak of Eagle Point appeared to have a worse view than El Capitan. I ignored the Eagle Point detour on the way back down. Based on the people that I passed, at least four people summited El Capitan that day by the Upper Falls route. Compare that to the 300 permits per day for the Half Dome cables. El Capitan is the rarer peak to bag. The walk back down the steps of the Upper Falls seemed easier than up. It was shaded almost all the way down, but the mosquitoes never left me. I was It was slow going, and I reached the Jeep after 7 p.m. This time, when I found Avery, he had peed on the floor diaper, but there was no other mess. The air conditioner did its job and kept Avery cool all day. Instead of going back to Yosemite for the last day of my permit, I left Avery in the trailer at the RV park and got the oil changed at the nearest dealership the following day. The commute to Yosemite Valley had become too much, and I was ready to move on after six days. Chapter 11, Returning to Las Vegas. Our mission was to get to Las Vegas and find a campsite prior to Jan and Sophie's arrival there by plane in a few days. Avery and I broke camp and drove to Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park. Unfortunately, the potential boondock near the park entrance proved far-fetched. Every piece of buildable land near the park was exploited, and all that I would that would have been too hilly to camp on anyways. At the entrance to the park, they warned that the road to the Great Trees was only for vehicles without trailers, which were less than 22 feet long due to the hairpin turns of the mountain. The giant sequoias, such as the biggest of them, General Sherman, were about 7,000 feet above sea level, while the park entrance was nearly 2,000 feet of elevation. I had little choice but to backtrack and pay $59 before tax for the full hookup spot in the town of Lemon, California. I dropped the trailer and left Avery there. The climb in the Jeep was steep, but worth it as the sequoias left me gaping. I parked at the side of the road next to the giant sequoia, nearly as big as the grizzly giant in Mariposa Grove in Yosemite. But this tree in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park was much healthier. In the non-handicapped parking lot, you need to wait 30 minutes for a shuttle to take you to the great General Sherman tree. Nevertheless, if you parked on the side of the road... You could walk back to the handicapped entrance. I did the latter. General Sherman was the biggest living tree by volume when I visited. General Sherman was not the tallest. It was not the widest. It was not the oldest, but it was big. I milked my full-service RV spot to the fullest, doing laundry and leaving at the last possible minute. The scenery today was the massive corporate farms exploiting water shipped from other parts of the West, such as the damming of the Colorado River to irrigate the California desert. It was an environmental abomination for the purposes of corporate welfare. I passed the sign advertising the Teapot Dome Peak, a name made infamous by scandals in the President Harding administration a century earlier. Avery and I boondocked at an off-road vehicle playground on the Bureau of Land Management BLM property outside of Barstow, California. It was well-marked and could have accommodated hundreds of campers. Only a conversion van joined me in taking a spot. My next day's boondock was to be another off-road vehicle playground on the federal government land north of Las Vegas. Unfortunately, this potential overnight spot was 
very much used by commercial operators, and no camping signs were everywhere. I looked along I-15 at the BLM land to the north for a good spot to camp. I turned into a tight camping spot marred by broken glass, which I picked up and discarded at the next gas station trash can. I ran the generator all night. When it kicked off at 1 a.m., the cabin temperature was still in the high 80s, so much for the theory that it gets cold in the desert at night. I put more gas in it and ran it until morning. Avery and I got ready for the visit of our favorite people. I did laundry and got groceries and Avery got groomed. I vacuumed the huge quantity of sand and dirt out of my formerly new Jeep. Chapter 12, Zion. Jana and Sophie arrived at the Las Vegas airport around 5 p.m. The boondock at the apex exit 58 on Interstate 15 was both blowing a gale and hot. We departed for our RV park in Virgin, Utah, near Zion National Park the next morning. It was a scenic drive through the mountains. We were issued a back-in space, which really did not give us enough room to back in straight. Jana asked to back in. The RV park staff pestered her with stupid directions and how can I help offers. I asked them to give us a space where backing up was easier, such as 103 or 104 right next to us. Giving us an easier space was not help the RV park staff could give. Our spot 102 required a sharp turn. At one point, Jana did back into the space, but the idiotic RV park worker had her drive out, and she never came close again. Eventually, Jana let me try, and I asked the parking lot drivers to go away. I eventually got in, but because the space was 28 feet long, the Jeep had to be parked sideways. After dropping the trailer, we visited Zion. The scenic drive on the bottom of the canyon supposedly filled up by 7 a.m. The scenic drive opens at 6 a.m., but the line for the scenic drive began at 2 a.m. Towards the end of the day, it was possible to get in the scenic drive, but you had to leave by dark, which was about 8.45 p.m. at that point in the year. We walked the Paris paved trail through the upper campground to the scenic drive to the campground. It was too late after 6 p.m. to attempt the upper and middle Emerald Pools hike, but we did get to go up and down the scenic drive and turned around as traffic began to build up at the last stop of the temple. With our first full day in Zion, we did not get up early enough to snag a space in the scenic drive. We drove at the Canyon Overlook Trail by the old tunnel, we were not the only ones to have this idea and had to navigate through the less-than-fit hikers of all ages. Jana signed up for the shuttle pass for the next day, July 1st, starting at 9 a.m. Starting in July, the park was closed to all cars past the visitor center. Thus, the bus was the only option. We planned to do the Narrows hike up the Virgin River. We rented boots, neoprene socks, walking sticks, backpacks, and dry bags. The river was supposed to be 60 degrees, despite the 90-plus degrees outside temperature. The Narrows Walk is nine miles and should not be attempted in rain due to flash flooding risk. On July 1st, 2020, we took the 10 a.m. shuttle to the Temple of Sinawava, the last stop on the scenic drive in the canyon. This is the first time I took public transit since the COVID-19 lockdowns on the trip. All National Park shuttles were closed prior to this. As a nod to the pandemic, the bus was at half capacity. We were told to keep the windows open, and we had to wear masks. Everyone seemed to be going to the last stop. 
the first mile or so was just walking beside the river. Then we started walking in the Virgin River. At the deepest point that we forded, it probably was over two feet. The walking stickets made it much easier. I kept expecting the train of hikers to thin out, but it got worse and worse. Hikers from every age, zero to 80, attempted the dangerous and strenuous hike. I asked Janet to dress Sophie in only non-cotton clothing, but I think she lacked the wardrobe for that. When Sophie slipped on a rock and got wet, her teeth began chattering. Cotton just dries very poorly. Sophie put on a dry cotton shirt that Jana packed, and we turned around about 2.5 miles into the hike. We got back to our car in time to drop off the rentals supplies before the outfitter closed and had lunch in Springdale, Utah. We had more shuttle tickets on July 2nd because Jana booked them the prior day at 9 a.m. We took the shuttle to the Emerald Pools. As before, you could book bus passes for the next day at 9 a.m. local time. Uh, We had to park just outside the park for $20 per day because the visitor center lot was full. We got off the shuttle stop for the grotto, the closest stop to the intermediate and upper emerald pools. The pools themselves were pretty small. They were mossy pools of water along the canyon walls. It was an enjoyable elevation hike of about three miles. We hiked a half mile from the grotto to the lodge where we got takeout lunch. We took the shuttle back to the visitor center and walked back to our Jeep just outside the park gate. Jana originally booked several days in the Needles campground at Canyonland National Park. That was a very long drive from Zion. In addition, there were no electrical hookups, although generators were allowed prior to 10 p.m. Since the temperatures were 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that would not work with Avery because dogs were not allowed on most of the trails and it was risky to run a generator while we were gone. We booked a private RV park near Moab, Utah, and the Arches and Canyonlands National Parks. We spent most of the day traveling there on July 3rd. Chapter 13, Moab and Bryce Canyon. We visited the islands in the sky section of the Canyonlands National Park. We passed the closer arches because we thought it would be packed for the holiday. Canyonlands is just a much less popular park than Arches. We rented audio guides and really enjoyed them. The guides had descriptions all along the stops of the giant mesa. Canyonlands has three districts, which are not connected. Islands in the Sky is the easiest to get to. Needles and the River District are harder to get to. We drove the entire length of the Islands in the Sky. We stuck to the paved roads. We also hiked the Easy White Rim Overlook, Upheaval Dome, and Grandview Trails. Our favorite was the Upheaval Dome and its green crater, which was either caused by a meteor impact or a salt dome collapse. I was interested in hiking the Gooseberry Trail to the valley floor, 1,400 feet below, but Jan and Sophie were not up for that. It was very hot, and there was almost no shade. Canyonlands Islands in the Sky is like looking out from the Grand Canyon, except there is no opposite rim to peer at. The canyons just stretched out for miles in the horizon. Back at our RV park, we saw fireworks going off at 10 p.m. Sophie said it was the first time she had saw fireworks go off since she was four. On July 4th, 2020, Sophie was nine years old. Jan and Sophie had been visiting me on the boat in some foreign country over the 4th of July. Her prior 4th of July holidays were spent in New Caledonia, Tonga, Tahiti, and Panama. Arches National Park was spectacular. Its rock formations, 
that formed arches of merely or merely windows were the ancient work of erosion in the Red Desert. We did the hikes of north and south windows, turret arch, double arch, skyway arch, and many more. Some were big enough to climb along the bottom. Sophie was invited by the RV neighbor to play with their nine-year-old daughter. After we left, Jana pointed out that their, the nine-year-old's father walked around with handcuffs and a gun on his belt. We were not nearly so security conscious. On July 6th, we left Moab for Bryce Canyon, where we had three nights at an RV park in Tropic, Utah. While we did not visit Bryce Canyon National Park that first day, we did get to see the towers of tan and red striped hoodoo rock formations as we descended the valley where Tropic is located. We took a long and rural route from Moab to Bryce Canyon. At one point, we rambled along a gravel road before we found pavement again on Utah Highway 12. On July 7th, we arrived at the park and attempted the Queen's Garden hike. Unfortunately, we did not take Sophie's Junior Ranger book. Each hike completed had a rub-off for the Junior Ranger Award. We saw all the Queen's Garden and the Wall Street section of the Navajo Loop by starting at Sunrise Point and returning to the rim at Sunset Point. Then we backtracked to our car at Sunrise Point for a total of four miles. Queen's Garden was my favorite trail in the park. You hike among hoodoo spires and see the clay and sand structures from every angle, including tunneling through the Towers of Decay. Wall Street was one of the most spectacular part of the Navajo Loop. It was a narrow slot canyon that finished with the short switchbacks that lift hikers hundreds of feet to the rim. Most of the rest of the day, we drove the length of the scenic drive at dozens of rim vistas. Bryce Canyon is not really a canyon. It's a series of amphitheaters of hoodoos. The next day, we had a few stops on the scenic drive we had not seen. With the little cellular signal that I had, I asked the Jeep dealer to send my permanent tag ahead to the FedEx facility in Overton, Nevada, near Las Vegas. I was driving on expired temporary tags. Uh, we hiked the two-mile Peekaboo Loop Trail. There were many chunks of clay that crumbled off the walls of this trail. This underscored how fragile all of Bryce Canyon was. A ton of clay could come down on you at any moment. Chapter 14, Burned by the Grand Canyon. We departed Tropic, Utah on July 9th, 2020 with the teardrop trailer in tow and headed 150 miles south to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. We camped at BOM Road 213 in northern Arizona after driving through many miles of burned forests. Our campsite was nicely wooded with a fire pit, but we were serenaded by howling wolves that night. There were other RV campers at other large sites at this boondock at about 8,000 feet above sea level. Jana's family had visited the North Rim in the 1980s, going on mule rides into the canyon and taking a helicopter ride above. My objective was much simpler. I just wanted to see the rim of it. The North Rim of the Grand Canyon is so different from the South Rim. I prefer the South Rim by far. Perhaps I was a pickier consumer of national parks, beauty, after visiting the South Rim, Yosemite, Zion, Canyonlands, Arches, and Bryce Canyon. The park entrance was four miles from the boondock. We saw a herd of three dozen bison relaxing on the Alpine Plain on the way. Unlike the South Rim, which has dozens of miles of trails along the rim, 
the North Rim only has a point. There are a few points where you can look at the Grand Canyon in the North Rim National Park. Moreover, the closest point to the visitor center was closed to dogs. Thus, I had to carry Avery in his bag to Bright Angel Point. This was the terminus of the trail that I that I had hiked from the South Rim to Col the Colorado River. It is a much longer hike from the South Rim to the North Rim. Bright Angel Point was a scary trail despite its short length with its steep drop-offs for the clumsy. I did not think the view from the North Rim was as good as the view from the South Rim. The higher elevation of the North Rim made it harder to see the rock layers. The North Rim had more vegetation also obscuring the different rock strata. The visitor center was on the narrow peninsula versus the long rim of the South Rim. Before we drove off, we hiked the parts of the bridal path and the nature and transept trails with Avery out of the bag. Our views were mostly of pines and these were probably the least interesting trails we had hiked since Jana and Sophie arrived. We drove to the point Imperial, which looked onto the green plains and hills north of the Grand Canyon. Point Imperial was the highest point in the Grand Canyon at 8,800 feet above sea level. While I liked that view, the seldom used paved road to it was too scary. I had no stomach for the 30-mile round trip further on that road to Cape Royal. The North Rim was closed to the forest fires a couple of weeks before we arrived. This weighed heavily on Jana's mind on our second night at the boondock. Without a cellular signal, we played the card game Go Fish to pass the time. We departed the boondock near the North Rim of the Grand Canyon at 8 a.m. and drove to Overton, Nevada, where I illegally parked on a busy street to pick up the license plate at the FedEx sort facility. The parking lot at the FedEx reception was too small to turn the trailer around in. FedEx gave me all kinds of grief about shipping it to the distribution center, but it was there. I put it on the plate after we arrived at the La Quinta Inn. It was so hot that the La Quinta Inn air conditioning was not working in one of our adjoining rooms, and we had to prop open a door to make the temperature bearable in the other. Avery and I dropped off Jana and Sophie at the airport, and Avery howled with grief after we left them. Chapter 15 the Valley of Fire Bees and Rams. Avery and I drove to the Valley of Fire State Park. I did not know if any RV sites would be available, but I found many electric and water sites for $30 per night. I dropped the trailer and turned on the air conditioning with the initial temperature of 115 degrees Fahrenheit at 1 p.m. Avery and I toured all the close to the road sites, which were within a quarter of a mile of their pullover. I found the thought of hiking a mile in that heat unthinkable even without Avery and with large supplies of water. My guess was that two liters of water per hour would be necessary. We drove to the nearest town of Overton, Nevada for ice and ice cream. The hacking COVID-19-like cough of a guest at the visitor center turned me off the ice cream there. Of course, the hacking cough lady only wore her mask over her mouth, but not over her nose. When Avery and I got back to the trailer, it was 120 degrees inside, despite the electric running. The air conditioner was cutting off after a two-minute interval. We got an error of E07 on the Elwell Air 8 unit. The manual of the said the E07 stands for High Pressure Sensor Trigger. As it was a Saturday, there was little chance of getting 
a hold of the small air conditioning manufacturer or my RV maker, New Camp. To my surprise, Elwell did get back to me by email that night. Josh Elwell wrote, almost any EO7 I have dealt with so far is because the air conditioner is not sitting correctly on its vent holes and circulating air. I saw no evidence of that. The air conditioner's position had not moved and we were on a very level spot. Instead, the new camp forum said that the air conditioner cannot take huge temperature differentials from the desired temperature versus the air temperature. The highest temperature setting for the air conditioner is 86 degrees Fahrenheit. I prepared the back seat of the Jeep to sleep. We tried hanging out in the shade of the Jeep, but Avery was panting heavily and the bees were swarming us. We for we were forced to retreat into the Jeep's air conditioning. A sign near the shower suggested putting out a bowl of water far from your camp to attract the bees. That worked for a time, but I still ended up killing two bees that could not be shooed away. One was in the Jeep and the other was in the shower. As a rule, I never kill stinging insects and bees especially, but those two bees were too aggressive and dangerous. Eventually, after sunset, the trailer air conditioning maximum temperature was not far from the actual air temperature. That allowed Avery and I to move inside the RV. Nevertheless, I was awakened at 3 a.m. by the trailer rocking. I looked outside the driver's side window, but I could not see anything. Then I heard a horn hit the side of the trailer. I went outside to find a big horn sheep drinking from the condensation of the air conditioner, which had pooled on the driver's side of the Tab 320S trailer. After that, I decided to start breaking up camp. Nevertheless, I wanted to get my money's worth from the $8 a day Wi-Fi at the camp, but it was not really working. The situation outside started spiraling out of control while I fooled with the internet. Now, not dozens, but hundreds of bees were swarming the air conditioning water discharge. After readying the trailer for departure as much as I could without disturbing the swarm of bees, I turned off the air conditioner and drove to Overton, Nevada for ice cream and coffee in the hopes that the bees would leave after the water spigot had turned off. While in Overton, I booked two nights in Escalante, Utah so that Avery could have air conditioning while I hiked the Spooky Gulch and Peekaboo Canyon. That was about 273 miles away. I dodged dozens of bees while raising stabilizers, removing water and electrical hookups, and hitching the trailer. I never got stung miraculously. When I retrieved my water bowl, I threw out two dozen dead bees. The bees loved the water, but were awful swimmers. Chapter 16, Lost in Grand Escalante. After that mostly sleepless night, the 273-mile drive to the RV park required a lot of caffeine. Avery and I did not get a particularly early departure because of the bees. Moreover, the scenery was a repeat of the drive with Jana and Sophie. Avery and I retraced our track into the Virgin River Gorge, past Zion National Park, past Bryce Canyon, through Tropic Utah, and then eventually into Escalante, Utah. I despaired that I did not advocate more strongly for outbound flights from Salt Lake City. If gas prices were $2.50 per gallon and the Jeep averaged 15 miles per gallon, each mile would have cost about 17 cents. I think Jan and Sophie saved more than $91 in airfares flying out of Las Vegas. Nevertheless, if I dropped the trailer at the boondock in Utah and drove Jana and Sophie back to Las Vegas, that may have made more sense than what I ended up doing. I left Avery at the RV park and drove three miles outside of 
the town of Escalante, where I turned down a dirt gravel road of BLM 200, which I would drive down for 26 miles to the trailhead parking lot. Then I was supposed there, it was supposedly a six mile hike to the Tamer Peekaboo Canyon. After completing Peekaboo, most people exited back their original trail via Spooky Canyon, but you could also return by walking around the canyon. Before leaving town at 8.30 a.m., I visited the BLM office where someone came out to explain the hike. The BLM Visitor Center employee explained that there were two ways to descend into Spooky Canyon. She thought it was easier to use the smaller entrance. She explained the pros and cons of the upper and lower parking lots. The upper parking lot went through another slot canyon, the Narrows. Since both lots seemed equidistant, the Narrows seemed, and the Narrows seemed interesting, I opted for that one. She said that the slot canyons were totally dry on this day due to lack of rainfall. This convinced me to ditch my water shoes. I heard folks got scratched up in the canyons as they squeezed through the tight spaces. For this reason, I wore a long sleeve shirt and pants. At the upper lot trailhead, I found the trail marked by pink ribbons, and it initially was clear the sand that had been trampled. When I ventured onto the rock, the clues were cairns, which led me to the narrows. Thanks to the description from the ranger at the visitor center, I was sure I wanted to follow the deeper canyon. When I emerged from the narrows, I did not see any close-by marker. Nevertheless, wandering around the open area, I spotted the 2-inch by 5-inch brown-painted trail marker. Next to it was a sign pointing to Peekaboo Canyon 100 yards ahead. Peekaboo required a sandstone climb about 15 feet up. There are handholds and footholds worn into the rock so that most folks can free climb it. There was a huge group of folks aged 2 to 60 with body mass indexes, BMIs, between 17.5 and 35, trying to decide if they would climb up. Thankfully, they let me jump in front, and I did not have to wait for crying two-year-old children. This was not a model of pandemic social distancing. I donned my mask and plunged forward. The first part of the peekaboo was very narrow for one quarter of the mile, then it widened out for a half mile before narrowing again and more wriggling between the rocks was required. When I merged in the full sun, it took some patience to find the, the trail to Spooky Gulch. I had planned to skip the harder Spooky Gulch, but with the huge group behind me, retracing my steps into Peekaboo Canyon seemed impossible. At the start of Spooky Canyon, there were was a 20-something woman crying. She was balking at the 15-foot drop at the start that the ranger warned about. Her friend and the man with the three sons who had passed me in the narrows were urging her to descend. There were three ways I could see to get down. The first one that made the woman cry in fear had you descend seven feet on a steep slope and then jump or chimney climb the rest. A chimney climb has you put pressure on two parallel walls. It is a very secure, no gear and no skill required method of climbing or down climbing vertical walls. You must be able to reach both walls at the same time, but this, thus the walls must be within a few feet of one another, or you can't make two or more points of contact at the same time. The other two ways to descend the 15 feet were chimney climbs down the three-foot-wide walls. I went around the distressed woman and descended the middle entrance, leaving the scene of the drama. Spooky was much cool, a much cooler temperature than Peekaboo, but it was not cool enough to have me don my hoodie. There 
were knobs on the walls where unprotected flesh could be caught. Fortunately, my shirt and pants were sufficient protection. I resisted the urge to chimney climb some of the sections instead descended further. I correctly feared that the gulch would descend further and strand me climbing very high up. I stuck to the ground, but my chest and body got stuck a couple places along the way. It was a struggle for me to find the correct path to the Peekaboo Canyon and the Narrows. I eventually found a sign and emerged from the Narrows. Unfortunately, after a mile, I was lost on a ridge over a wash. I followed the trail to the wash, and I found Cairns leading me to the southwest when I thought the trail should have been leading me northwest. I saw tracks in the dry wash and followed them there, where two women were debating descending into Spooky Gulch. I told them that I thought I had the wrong trail and headed west. The wash turned out to be the wrong way, and the trail went very cold. Soon I was scrambling over a half a dozen ridges and valleys and navigating west towards where I believed the road BLM 200 was. I spotted cars in the bathroom, which was like the upper lot to the south. I did not aim directly to it because I did not know if it was the upper or lower lot. In the end, it was the upper parking lot. I scaled the wire fence onto the road about a half mile north of the upper lot. My watch said I'd walk nine miles or three more miles than the official round trip distance of the hike. I carried three liters of water but could have used four on the in the heat of the day. I arrived back in the Jeep at 3.15 p.m. on July 13, 2020. An out-of-shape woman who took the correct trail was screaming for water and two kind men ran out to her with extra water as she approached her car. After a long drive on the dirt and gravel road, I found Avery was cool in the trailer when I returned about 4.30. Chapter 17, Trip Paused and the Final Mission. Avery and I did a small hike at the Petrified Forest State Park of Utah the next day. It was a $8 fee and we did a 1.2 mile loop in which Avery was carried for half a mile. Of course, this was very similar to the petrified wood I saw in Arizona at the start of my RV trip. Unfortunately, there were no more hikes in Grand Staircase Escalante that appealed to me. I was at a loss for further national parks or monuments that I wanted to visit. Yellowstone was too far in the wrong direction from home. I felt pretty satisfied with my trip so far and was ready to go back to Lafayette, Louisiana. There was just one thing I really wanted to do. I wanted to climb a Colorado 14er. A 14er is one of the dozens of 14,000 foot plus tall mountains in the lower 48 United States. No mountains in the lower 48 United States are over 15,000 feet tall. Only three states have 14ers. California has about a dozen. Washington has two if you define Liberty Cap on Mount Rainier as a different mountain than Rainier's primary peak. Colorado has over four dozen. I identified the four or five of the easiest, which were just off Interstate 70 west of Denver. They were in no order. Gray's Peak, Class 1, round trip 8 miles, approximate elevation gain 3,000 feet, elevation 14,270. Torrey's Peak, Class 2, round trip 8 miles, approximate elevation gain 3,000 feet, elevation 14,267. It's on the same saddle as Gray's Peak, meaning you could bag two easy 14ers. 3. Quandry Peak, Class 1, round trip 7 miles, approximate elevation gain 3,000 feet. 
elevation 14,265 feet. Mount Bierstadt, class 2, round trip 7 miles, approximate elevation gain 3,000 feet, elevation 14,060 feet. After Escalante, Avery and I camped at a boondock near Capitol Reef National Park. I was racing to find electricity and Wi-Fi. I was too far from Lafayette, Louisiana before the midnight launch on June 17, 2020 of a new video game that I wanted to cover named Ghost of Tsushima. For the last couple of years, I had been experimenting with my Linus Wilson YouTube channel with videos on trending topics after one of my research papers I identified it trending as a determinant of more views. I was very successful with my coverage of the TV show Game of Thrones, but it ended. My subscribers shot up from a, under 100 to over 400 overnight. Then my views and new subscribers fell off a cliff. I picked up coverage of similar TV shows such as The Witcher, but my efforts were not so successful. I played The Witcher video games to get video for my TV show coverage and found my video game tips videos for the five-year-old Witcher 3 Wild Hunt video game did much better than my TV coverage videos. Thus, I wanted to cover a similar new release because new releases are trending and get the most interest around the launch date. I spent a week around the Ghost of Tsushima launch date at the two Passport America RV parks in Moab, Utah, playing the game and pumping out tips and tricks videos. My coverage of Ghost of Tsushima was very successful, pushing my channel over a thousand subscribers and allowing me to make money on YouTube ads. By July 23rd, 2020, I was able to take a break from my videos about video a video game to arrive at the shadow of Quandary Peak. I left Avery on July 24, 2020 at a full hookup motel and RV park, which had an elevation of about 10,000 feet. I arrived at the trailhead just before dawn and was able to squeeze in a parallel parking space very near the trailhead. The 3.33 mile trek up with a 3,375 elevation gain was a very steep. I had Far too many clothes on to start. It really got interesting above the tree line at about 13,000 feet. I probably should have booked an extra day at the RV park at altitude to get acclimated. Moab was only about 4,000 feet in elevation. I slowed down and persevered, and my brief fog lifted. I was standing on a large flat summit, 14,265 feet, with several dozen other hikers very soon. I descended without difficulty and was back in the Jeep before noon. Colorado has a lot of lightning activity in the summer afternoon. Thus, finishing in the morning is the safest way to do one of these climbs. In a few days, I was home in Lafayette, Louisiana. The Tab 320S took its place in the garage. I spent more time at home in the fall 2020 than in spring 2020 because the classes that I taught in the fall were fully remote. I had gone on the RV trip of my dreams despite the illegal power grabs of politicians and epidemiologists. Nobody got hurt. We got the experience of the natural gems of America, which are located far from governor's man. Appendix one, backing a small travel trailer. Jana wanted me to give some tips for my backing a small travel trailer. I primarily rely on the backup camera. If the center of the backup line goes through the ball, 
then the trailer will keep its current angle. If the backup camera center line is off one way or the other, then the angle of the trailer will go one way or the other. It is obvious how to break the trailer one way or the other if you watch what you are doing with little corrections. Unfortunately, you are limited by how far you can break before jackknifing and having to straighten out. The more space you have to straighten out, the better. When backing up slopes like my driveway, I like to use four-wheel drive low. I also try to avoid situations where backing is necessary. Thus, thinking ahead can save the travel trailer hauler some grief. If you do not have a backup camera, they are going for as little as $99. Nevertheless, using the side mirrors can be done to track if the trailer is going straight or braking. I find looking at the front wheels of the tow vehicle is also helpful to predict the reaction of the travel trailer to a movement of the wheel. Appendix 2, Sophie's alternative titles for this book. Here are some alternative titles that my daughter Sophie suggested for this book. Many are no doubt better than the current title, you may wish to call this book by these alternative titles. Why being RVful makes me gleeful. Cushpringling and other new words to use while camping. Cruising with the camper. Travels with the trailer. Ride with the RV. Me and my land boat. Crying, camping, teardrops of happiness. How COVID kicked me from Australia into Utah. COVID ruined everything. Slovid, slow boat sailing slash camping me my wife kid and an annoying dog the end okay thanks for listening to the slow boat sailing podcast if you want to support the slow boat sailing podcast you can make a pledge at patreon.com slash slow boat sailing <laughs> <laughs>